Today, of course, we're finishing up a series we've been calling Stop Running Scared, and we're talking about this idea uh, that, uh, that, that fear in itself is not a bad thing. Fear keeps us from doing dumb stuff, kind of causes us to at least pause and check. The problem is that when we live in a spirit of fear, when, they, when, when a cloud of fear kind of overwhelms us, we start making life decisions uh, through the lens of fear instead of faith. And the Bible is clear, 2 Timothy 1.7, God's not given us a spirit of fear. Instead, he's given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. Today, we're wrapping up the series with uh, what I'm simply calling the fear of commitment. Anybody agree with me that, that, that there's a huge lack of commitment in our culture these days? Anybody? Anybody agree with that one? Is that a real issue for us? I did a little thinking and researching this past week just to see if it's just kind of feels that way or if it's true. And I just ran across a few things that I found interesting. When it comes to work, in my dad's generation, what did they do? They got a job. They worked at that job all their lives. They retired and that was it, right? Today, did you know that 80% of college graduates are not doing what they went to college to train to do? The average American changes careers, not jobs, careers five times. Different times, different world. Marriage, is that changed? In my grandmother's day, the average age of first marriage was 15. Nobody's suggesting we should go back to that, but we've seen the changes. Uh, in my mother's age, it was 18. In my age, it was 21. And now you know what the average age of first marriage is? 29. Not to mention the length of marriages, the number of years, the number of divorces, things have changed dramatically. Even, even where we live, in 2016, there was a study that said that one in four Americans live in a different place today than they did five years ago. 25%, right? On average, Americans live in 11 different places in their lifetime. Compare that to Europe where the average is four. Compare that to Asia where Kim and I spent 10 years where three generations live in the same place. Different time. How about church life? Is it affected in church life? Yeah. Again, you know, my grandmother was the mother of the church. She was the last living charter member of the church that we grew up in. My mom was baptized in that church. I was baptized in that church. That was our family church. That was the reality. And now people come to our ownership class. They join our church. And you know what they say? Some of you have said it to us. You know, we're, God has called us here. What's the expression? For a season. Just, it's, a, it's a different mindset. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all change is bad. Some change is good. Some change is needed. The problem is when we get into this grass is greener on the other side mentality. And we never fully commit to anything. Hear me. Nothing of significance ever happens without commitment. Do I need to say that again? Nothing of significance ever happens without commitment. I do. I solemnly affirm to tell the truth, the whole, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. I mean, those are commitments that we make, and nothing of significance happens until somebody somewhere makes a commitment. And yet, we live a little bit like the little boy 
whose mom says, son, I, I left the broom out on the porch. Would you go get it for me? And it had already gotten dark and the boy was scared of the dark and he didn't really want to go. So he's just kind of hemming and hawing. And she says, son, I need you to go get the, the broom for me. And he, he kind of edged closer to the front door, but didn't want to go out. And she finally realized what was going on. And she says, son, don't worry about it. Jesus is there. He'll take care of you. And so he kind of edged a little bit closer, but he still didn't want to go. And mom finally said, I need the broom now. And so he goes to the door and he opens just a crack. And he says, Jesus, if you're out there, can you hand me the broom? <laughs> We want somebody to make the commitment. We just don't want to overcome our fears to make the commitment ourselves. So in the few minutes I've got with you this morning, I want to do a couple of things. First of all, I, I, want, to, I, I want to help us to identify some of the reasons we can be so afraid to make commitments. Uh, but far more importantly, I want, to, I want to give you a mechanism to help you make intelligent, wise commitments. And then I'm going to ask you to join me in a commitment this morning. I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to ask you to join me. I'm going to ask you to be brave and make a commitment with me today. Uh, I think I mentioned that nothing of significance happens until somebody makes a commitment. I'm going to ask you to do that. So we're going to identify some reasons that we tend to be afraid. We're going to we're come up with a mechanism, a, a biblical model whereby you can make wise decisions. But before we do, can I, can I take just a minute? I won't, won't take long with this, but I feel like I need to be sure that you understand why this is so important. Let me just give you three quick reasons why commitments are so incredibly important. The first reason is because my commitments, it's actually my commitments that reveal my values. When I, what I give my time, my energy, my money to actually reveals what I really consider to be important. Is that true? I can say that I'm committed to my family, but if I don't commit time, money, and energy to my family, who am I kidding? Not them, Right? I can say that God, my relationship with God is the most vital relationship in my life. But I'm, if I'm inconsistent with church attendance and tithing and serving and that kind of stuff, then who am I kidding? Not God. What I commit to shows me and everybody around me what I really consider to be important. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You have to choose. Nobody can do everything so you got to choose, what am I going to commit to? On the other hand, if you never commit to anything, then you've just revealed your highest value. It's yourself. You've decided that I want to keep my options open because my highest value is me. The second uh, reason commitments are so important is that they ultimately form my character. They form my character. Say it with me. I will become more and more like what I'm committed to. Come on. I will become more and more like what I'm committed to. You got it? Let's do it together. I will become more and more like what I'm committed to. One more time. I will become more and more like what I'm committed to. That's just what happens. Proverbs 4.23, be careful what you think because your thoughts run your life. That simply means that if you think money will solve your problems, you're going to make commitments to getting more money. If you think people liking you will solve your lack of happiness, then you're going to live under the fear of rejection that we talked about last week. It's just the way it works. The third why, I said, I just want to do these quickly to make sure we get them into our thinking before we get into the, what we're going to do, uh, is, is that it ultimately determines my destiny. 
Every choice has consequences. Every choice has consequences, both in the here and now and in the then and after. And even the smallest choice it appears to be has a consequence and major implications over time. Oh, well, Pastor Jim, I hear that, but, 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 but uh, my, the fates have already decided my destiny. Or, or my failed marriage has already determined my future. My, my past mistakes have already defined where I can go and can't go. My, my limited abilities have already defined what I can commit to and what I can't do. Can, can I give you a deeply theological, biblical word for that? I don't know how you spell that, but that's hogwash. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, 37, lean in a minute. Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can anyone give in exchange, if you're taking no circle that word exchange, in exchange for his soul? Did you know that the average American lives 25,550 days? And every commitment that you make is exchanging some of that time for what that commitment calls on you to do. So if you decide to binge watch TV for a day, you just traded one of those 25,000 days for that. If you decide to spend a day on the golf course or a day at work, I mean, I'm not saying those things are necessarily good or bad. I'm just saying you need to live aware of the fact that I am exchanging one of my 25,550 days for this. By the way, if you're 45, you've got 1,500 weeks left. You can do the math for me. You think I'm serious about what I exchanged my days for? Come on. Well, all I'm saying is that wise people think through their commitments because they know that not only do those commitments reveal what they really value, not only does it form their character, but ultimately determines where you're going to end up. And please hear me, I did not bring you here or invite you online to be a part of this for some kind of guilt trip. God doesn't judge you based on where you've been or even where you are right now. We don't either. What we want to know is the direction of your feet from this point forward. Where do I go from here? So please think about the things you're committing to through that lens. So you ready to get into it? I, I want to make sure we understood the why before we get into it. But again, quickly, again, I want to do this quickly, is I want to identify some of the reasons that we can be so afraid to make commitments, but then I really want to focus on how can we overcome this fear? How can we stop living in the spirit of fear of making commitments? So let's get into it, okay? What, what are some of the reasons? I've already mentioned one of them. Past hurts is one of them. Pastor, I made some commitments in the past and, and they didn't work out and, and now I'm afraid to commit again. Can we just be honest? Look at somebody and say, I've made mistakes and you've made mistakes. Just look at somebody and say that. Come on. I've made mistakes and you've made mistakes. Look at somebody and say, I got regrets and you got regrets. Right? It's just... All I'm saying to you guys is if you allow those things that all of us have to define your present and your future, you're also allowing yourself to be conned by Satan who doesn't want you to have an abundant life. Your past is your past unless you're making it your present, which means it's defining your future. So you decide. But we can be scared. Oh, no, well, I failed before. I don't know if I can try this again. The second reason I think may be a little bit bigger, particularly for Americans, some of you that are watching uh, in other countries, and we do have 
folks in our online congregation from Central America, from Southeast Asia, every week they're with him. We welcome you. I'm glad you guys are here. Some of my Filipino friends watch with us every week. Some of our Salvadorian friends are with us every week. We welcome you. But for we Americans, um, there's a big one, and I just simply call it a desire for independence. We, we're, we're a nation that's built on this idea of independence. I mean, one of our defining documents is the Declaration of Independence, right? I mean, we're built on that, what we proudly call rugged individualism. I'm part of a generation whose biggest songs were, were songs like, Don't Fence Me In and... Uh, I gotta be me, right? I don't care what you say anymore. It is my life. Who's dancing over there? This is not a Billy Joel concert. You got confused for a minute, didn't you? You thought, I did it my way. I left five marriages in the dust, but I did it my way. Come on. Every one of those things is a setup for loneliness. This individualism. I am a rock. I am an island. Because I'm a woman. <laughs> it is no coincidence that the most independent generation in history set the stage for a generation that's more comfortable texting than talking. God did not create us to be independent. He didn't create us to be dependent either, where I can't do anything. I'm dependent on other people. He didn't create us to be codependent, where I need you to be needy so that I feel needed. He didn't create us for that either. He created us to be interdependent, where I bring something to the table and you bring something to the table, and we're both better when we commit to each other. We're unified by our common commitments. That's God's model. Interwoven together, the Bible says all parts of the body of Christ. The third reason, yeah, there's past hurts that makes it scary to make commitments. There's individualism that makes it hard. But I think the biggest one for most people is self-doubt. James chapter 5, verse 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. We'll come back to verse 5 in a minute. For now, I want us to see verse 8. You see what he's saying? There's an instability in every area of our lives. When we refuse to, to operate in faith, when doubt and self-doubt creeps in, there's an instability that comes. Do you, do you understand why? Do you understand why? <clears throat> In some cases, it's because uh, this doubt kind of stirs uh, our ability to make smart decisions. So what do we do? We put them off. We're constantly saying, well, you know, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know if I should. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't. Until the opportunity finally passes and should I becomes shoulda, coulda, woulda, but I didn't. The other reason is that we sort of commit but we set ourselves up for failure by never really going all in. 
constantly wondering if we made the right decision. Ah, I don't know. This is okay. Here we go. What if I committed to the wrong thing? Until our doubts become paralyzing and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I say, do your due diligence. Follow the plan that I'm going to give you in just a few minutes this morning. And then once you've done that, make a commitment. And instead of second guessing all the time, did I do the right thing? Make it the right thing. Let me illustrate this for you, okay? How many of you are married? Can I see your hands? God bless your hands. God bless that hand. You're married. How many of you, come on, work with me now, be honest. How many of you at some point during your engagement went, oh, Lord, what have I done? <laughs> Am I doing the right thing? Is this, the doubts, any, any of you here? It's a brave soul, two, three, four brave souls, yeah. How many of you walking down the aisle? Oh, God, what am I doing? None of you. Okay, good. That was a smart move, dude. Don't raise your hand on that. Trouble is, I've known couples that live their entire married life wondering if they made the right choice and if they worried less on whether it was the right choice and realized they made the commitment, make it the right choice, they'd have a great marriage. Somebody said life is kind of like eating at a buffet. If you guys like to go to McCall's, I love hate going to McCall's, you can tell. I love more than I hate, but uh, you go to one of those buffets with all that big spread of food and you come along with the plate and there's so many good options. You're going, well, I don't know. Okay, well, I'll just get a little of this and a little of that. And before you know it, you fill that plate up and you go back and you sit down and you think, well, you know, that was really good. I wish I'd made a, you know, get a little more of that. So you go back and you wind up filling multiple plates of multiple things and at the end of the meal, you leave the restaurant satiated and miserable, but not really satisfied. The tragedy is that some people live their lives that way, not really committing to anything, trying lots of things, keeping their options open, staying busy, but never abundant, living a full life, but never finding fulfillment in life. So how do we overcome that? How do we break free from that? That's what I want us to make sure we get. So if you, if you went to brunch in your brain, come on back. How do we overcome the f- spirit of fear when it comes to making commitment? And then I said earlier, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to ask you to join me in a commitment this morning. The first step in making a wise decision, overcoming this fear, is you ask God for wisdom. You ask God for wisdom. God, help me not to make dumb commitments, Lord. Close the door if you don't want me to go there. Open a door if that's where you want me to go, Lord. I want to know what you have in mind for me. Go back to James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God. And what will God do? You stupid idiot. That's such a simple choice. Why are you bothering me with it? No? What would he say? The Bible says he gives that kind of wisdom generously to everybody without finding any fault. Man, I am so glad you asked. I got this plan for you. And it's this amazing plan for fulfilling life and abundant life. And when you ask me, man, I just get really excited because I get to tell you what I got in mind for you next. Hear me. God is willing, ready, waiting, anxious to help you make smart commitments because he knows that your commitments reveal your values and form your character and determine your destiny. I mean, he wrote the book after all. He knows 
those things are true. So don't make any commitments without talking to him first. The one who sees the end from the beginning, talk to him first. Lord, you see the big picture, not me. I'm operating with blinders on. So do you want me to marry this person? Do you want me to take this job? Do you want me to get involved in this church? Do you want me to go here, go there, not go here, go there? What, what do you have in mind for me, Lord? And let me just throw this in for free. You don't have to put any extra in the offering for this. I beg you, don't go to God and say, God, I've figured it out. Here's what I want you to do. Which none of you ever do. So I didn't have to say that, right? What if instead of saying, Lord, bless what I'm doing, we started saying, Lord, I want to do what you're blessing. I want to do what you've said. Here's where I want to move. Come go with me on this journey. Stop before you make any commitments, no matter how insignificant they may seem, and say, God, what do you have in mind for me? Second step then is compare the benefits with the costs. You want to overcome the fear of commitment? Do a cost-benefit analysis. Compare the benefits with the cost. Before you ever make the commitment, ask yourself the question, what's the payoff and what's the price? Because every commitment has a cost. Is that true? Sure. If it's a commitment worth making, there's going to be a price tag attached to it. You give something to it and you get something from it. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if you don't give anything to it, then you need not expect to get anything from it. Whether it's a relationship or a job or a church or whatever it is, if you don't give something to it, then you need not expect to get anything from it because that's just how the kingdom of God works. So what I'm trying to tell you is it is not selfish or unspiritual to make this comparison. What are the costs? What are the benefits? I do it all the time. I do it in my personal life. I, I don't know if I do it every day, but it's certainly a regular, consistent part of the way I make decisions day by day. I do it with our staff all the time. Let me give you an example. Several weeks ago, <coughs> when, <coughs> when the governor lifted the, uh, the guidelines, because the federal judge made him, but that's another here there, uh, uh, and said we could start meeting in person again, uh, that was not a political statement, it was just a historical fact, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, we, so, we're, okay, so now we got to meet, we're, we're, our staff meets and we go, okay, um, should we start in-person services? So we went in through the process, our senior leadership team sat down and we spent time. So what are the benefits to adding to our online audience, which is still the largest audience we have, 2,000 plus every weekend these days, um, through our various streams, Facebook, YouTube, online streaming, um, plus more during the week on demand. But... Um, should we resume in-person services? So we came out with the benefits, and I won't walk you through all of that, but, but there's lots of benefits for seeing each other, fellowshipping each other. Even if we can't hug, we can air high-five each other, singing together in a corporate environment. Just lots of benefits for the body of Christ being together uh, for everybody who can and is willing to. So we kind of walked through all that, and then we said, okay, what are the costs? And of course, the biggest cost would be uh, the concern that we would become a place where people would come and, and actually pick up the virus and take it out, and we'd become a, a source of the contagion, which we definitely didn't want, and heaven forbid some of our folks get sick and, uh, and or pass away. And so we said, well, okay, wait a minute, lots and lots of benefits. One 
cost that we're concerned about, can we mitigate that cost? Can we do something about that cost? And so we said, okay, well, what do we do about that cost? Well, then let's, let's social distance. Let's spread our chairs out. Let's, let's require all of our staff and volunteers to wear masks. Let's encourage our people, particularly when they're moving about in the lobbies and various places to wear masks so that we're being sensitive to each other. Let, let's, let's social distance in everything that we do. Let's dismiss the services in an orderly fashion. Let's disinfect. Let's put hand sanitizers out. Why do we do all that? Because the benefits of having in-person services are greater than the cost, but the potential cost is real, so let's mitigate the cost. Does that make sense? I know some of you chafed at that. It's, well, I don't like to wear a mask. Well, I'm sorry. We, we went through this journey, and then we made a commitment. We're going to do in-person services. And as long as that works, guess what we're going to keep doing? In-person services. There are times when we can't. Our Smithfield campus, as many of them are watching online this morning, we welcome you guys because through no fault of their own, they did all those things, but they're folks who got it at, at work and brought it in, and so they, they've had an outbreak, and so it's okay, we're going we're gonna to stop. Week by week, we'll make a decision whether to go back to in-person service because this pandemic is, is real. So you see what I'm saying? You're, you're, you're making a decision. You're making a commitment that has implications. But before you do, you ask God for wisdom, and then you say, okay, what's the cost? What's the payoff? And when you do that, it helps you to make a wise decision. Well, that doesn't sound very spiritual to me. It sounds like a business thing. I, Proverbs 20, 25 says it's a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later consider one's vows. Jesus himself said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Luke 14, 28. So the scriptures say this is the, why, the smart way to go about making commitments. This is how you overcome the fear of commitments by doing it intelligently. Lord, what do you want first? then what's the cost benefit to it? And then ultimately, I trust God to help me keep my commitments because here's where we get. Okay, I've decided to make this commitment, but what if I fail? I've decided this is a good commitment to make, but what if I don't have what it takes? Psalm 37, verse 5, I want us to read it together. It's on the screens. Here we go. Let's read it. One, two, three, go. Commit those really big things in your life that you do what? Commit a few of the things in life that you do. What? Commit. Every, what does everything include? Everything you do to the Lord, trust him and he will help you. Now, let me be real clear. This journey to committing everything to the Lord and trusting him to help you begins Frankly, real life begins when you make the commitment to follow Jesus Christ. When you say, okay, I'm done straddling the fence. I'm done playing games with this thing. I'm stepping across the line of faith. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So maybe some of you are on that fence online in the room. You're going, ah, you know, thinking I'm not sure if I'm ready to make that commitment or not. We'll do our three-step process. What's the first step in the process? Ask God what he wants for you. Does God want you in his family? Somebody say yes loudly. He wants you in his family so much he sent his one and only son to die for the sins that you committed. That's how bad he wants you in his family. So we got that one. What's the cost benefit? Is there a cost benefit to following Jesus? 
Sure there is. Jesus was clear about the cost. He said things like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He said, submit your will, not just receive Jesus as Savior, but Lord. And we don't use the word Lord, go around Lord Travis. <laughs> but but you, you know what it means? It means the big kahuna, the guy in charge. So you submit your will, submit your life to him. That's the cost of following Jesus Christ. He talked about the benefits too. What are some of the benefits to following Jesus? Well, you get a fresh start in life, a clean slate. No matter where you've been or what you've done, the Bible calls it justified just as if you never sinned. You get healing from past hurts. You get the power to overcome your fears, the junk that's holding you back. You get a life-giving relationship with Jesus that breathes life into you and gives you resources to help the people around you, not to mention there's this thing called heaven that we all want to go to one day. So do the benefits outweigh the cost? Somebody say yes, quick. They benefit, the benefits outweigh the cost profoundly can you mitigate the cost? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Yeah, because I was going to be a rock star. I already made up my mind. I was in a band in my senior year in high school. I was going to be a rock star. And I decided to give my life to Jesus Christ. He had totally different plans for me. Do I have any regrets? You better believe I don't have any regrets because his plan was so much better than anything I dared to dream or think or ask. And his plan for you is better than anything you dare to dream or think or ask. So it may feel like a cost, but it ain't. Because God's got abundant life for you if you'll give your life to him. Okay, I hear you, but, but I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to make a commitment if I can't keep it. Well, here's the good news. Matthew 3, 2, 13, God is working in you to help you want to do and be able to do. What pleases him? In fact, that's the confidence that the Apostle Paul leaned on to keep going no matter what life threw at him. Try not to get distracted by the rain. We're inside and our roof doesn't leak. <laughs> the Apostle Paul had confidence because of this. Look at what he said to Timothy, his spiritual son, in chapter 1, verse 12. I know whom I have believed. Come on, read it with me like you mean it. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. No, I may not have what it takes to keep this commitment, but he does. And I've put myself in his care and in his hands. Well, I just don't want to let the Lord down. You ain't holding him up. He's holding you up. So you ask him what he wants. You do a cost-benefit analysis. And then you trust him to help you keep those commitments. Now, go back to Psalm 37. What did it say? Commit your eternity it amazes me how many people that I've known through the years who can trust Jesus with their eternity, but they can't trust him whether or not they're going to have groceries this week. 
seems easier to trust for the big things than the little things. And I think that's why he said, trust him with everything. You can trust him with everything. I got to close. But I told you I was going to ask you to make a commitment with me before I did. So I want you to lean in just a minute. I won't let you I won't see. Thank you, Lord, for stopping the rain just at the right moment. <laughs> What's your next step? What's your next commitment? Some of you in this room, some of you watching online right now, you haven't said yes to Jesus Christ. Well, if I ask you if you're a Christian, you might say yes, but, but you know in your heart you haven't said I'm all in. I am yours. Whatever you want, that's what I want. Whatever you say, my answer is yes. You haven't stepped across that line to make him Savior and Lord. Maybe that's your next step. Around here, we've got a whole process. You, you commit to Christ, then you get water baptized. We, we did baptisms the last couple of weekends out at the wildlife pond. We baptized 10 just from our location. Some of our other locations are, are baptizing others this week and next. And so we had 25 new owners this month. We've probably 15, 18 water baptisms this month. COVID ain't stopping the work of God from moving forward. <laughs> no, it's not. Come on. Maybe your next step is to join a serve team. Say, I'm going to serve in, in student ministries. Then they won't just give you a, tea, a free T-shirt. They'll give you a rewarding experience to help young people get established in their faith. Maybe it's bridge kids. Pastor Jenny won't just give you a T-shirt. She'll give you one of the most amazing experiences of your life as you watch these children come to Jesus for the first time, giving their lives to him and growing up in there faith. Maybe, maybe your next step is, is to become an owner. We've got another ownership class planned for December 6th. Give me a, write me a note, send me a text, send me an email, fill it, put it on your connect card. Let us know you're interested in, I'm ready. This is it. This is the church that God has called me to be a part of. And let me just say quickly, because uh, I want to get down to the bottom line commitment here. Um, th that's not a pitch for you to become an owner at the bridge. Our desire for you to be in the church that God designed you for, custom made you for, is greater than our desire for you to be here. I want you here. But if God's got something else for you, that's what we want. But when you find it, don't stay on the fringes. Get in. If it's here, come on. If it's somewhere else, get in but become a part, be a co-owner of the family business, God and sons and daughters. Amen? Amen? Going through all the next steps, what's your next step? Whatever it is, hear me, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things when they're willing to make sincere commitments to him. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things when they make sincere commitments to him. About 80 years ago, a crazed fanatic stood in the largest stadium in Munich, Germany and listened while 100,000 young men in brown shirts chanted, we are yours, we are yours, we are yours. 
I was born after World War II. Some of you lived through those years. But I have sometimes wondered over the years since then, how did such a small country with limited resources almost conquer the known world? The answer, commitment, commitment. About the same time, Professor Edwin Orr, who was on faculty at Wheaton College, took a group of young students to England on a, on a, a tour of religious sites. Took them to the, some of the places where Christianity ex exploded in, in England and across Europe. England, of course, was one of the primary missionary sending countries of the world in the 1800s. So in 1940, he took a group of these guys to tour. One of the places on their tour was the home of John Wesley. Some of you know that name. John Wesley was the founder of, of Methodism, the Wesleyan theology that many of us, that's the basis for our faith. Many churches, thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of churches across the world who based their understanding of God on Wesleyan theology. They went to his home and they walked in to his home in Epwich and, and uh, and you could almost feel the atmosphere in the room when they walked through the kitchen where he prepared his meals. And then they went into his little study and they saw, in some cases, some of his books were still there on the desk and, and, uh, and shelves, books on the shelves. And, and some of the students, I'm told, would actually touch the spine of the books and just kind of live in that moment. This is where John Wesley sat and learned and researched and studied and wrote those defining documents of our faith helped us to understand Scripture, to be biblical Christians. And then they went upstairs to a tiny little room, which was the most intimate space for John Wesley, his bedroom. And as they're looking around this tiny little room with just a bed and a little dresser there, one of the students noticed that they were, there were indentions on the floor beside the bed, two indentions. And the student said, what, what, what's that about Professor Orr? And he said, well, it's said that that's where John Wesley would kneel every day to pray. And it wasn't a good morning, Lord. Hope you have a good day today. And it wasn't before he went to bed, now lay me down to sleep. I mean, he prayed. He agonized for England. He agonized for America. He prayed that God would bring a revival. Prayed that Jesus would be Lord across Europe and and America, and he prayed for hours, and he wept before the Lord and prayed that revival would come. Ultimately, John Wesley rode 250,000 miles across America on horseback, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ and brought a revival to our nation. Well, they finished that conversation, and they went down to get on the bus to go to the next site, and Professor Orr is doing a head count. Um, and he realized there's one student missing, and so he had to go back in to see who it was and what was going on. He went in the kitchen, went to the study, and finally went up to the bedroom and didn't see anybody at first, but then he saw a head over on the other side of the bed and realized that one of the students had gone and placed his knees in the same place where John Wesley had prayed those many years before. And he heard the voice, do it again, Lord. 
just do it again and let it start in me. Bring revival to our nation. Bring revival to America. Do it again, Lord, and let it start in me. Professor Orr finally went over and laid his shoulder on a student and he said, son, it's time to go. And Billy Graham got up and walked and got on the bus with his fellow students. One crazed fanatic called for a commitment to Nazism and death. And they almost conquered the world, but they failed. One sincere follower of Jesus Christ said, Father, would you do it again? Would you start in me? And he preached the gospel to a billion people and died with his integrity intact and has gone to his reward. As I read that story this week, somehow never put those two things together until yesterday, mowing my lawn. And it hit me and I began to cry in my front yard. Then at that darkest moment in the world, there were two commitments being made. And I found myself pushing my lawnmower saying, oh God, do it again. Do it again. America needs revival. Do it again. That has started me. I'm not going to ask anybody else to do this until I say, Lord, start in me. Break me. Mold me. Change me. Call me to whatever commitments you want to call me to. My answer, Lord, is yes. Just do it again. Start in me. I told you recently that one of my, in fact, probably my life verse, my defining life verse, has long been Second Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. And in that moment of calling out to Him, that verse flashed through my mind again. And I said, oh God, would you do it again? I don't normally single people out. I certainly don't want to embarrass anybody. But I just feel compelled to say, if you'll join me in that commitment this morning, at home or in this room, would you stand to your feet? I'm not going to make a whole lot of stuff. We're not going to sing a song. We're not going to do 37 verses of just as I am, just... Do it again, Lord. Let it start in me. You can make it a chant, make it a prayer, make it your own words. But pray that prayer with me, would you, Father? I know you love us, and I know you love the world because you love the world so much you gave your Son, your only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life, but you're looking for a few ordinary people to make commitments so you can do extraordinary things through them. And here I am. Here we are. We're yours. Do it again, I pray. And let it start in me. Would you say those words, whisper those words, yell those words, I don't care, but would you say them? I want you to hear yourself. Do it again, Lord. Let it start in me. In Jesus' name, amen.